Father, thank you for this gathering tonight. Thank you that you have always called your people to assemble. That has been your nature. That has been your commands throughout the scriptures. And here on a showery, warm evening in March are gathered a bunch of your people who have come because they love you and you have called them to gather. And so, Lord, as we gather before you in your presence and study your words, we pray that you would strengthen us and encourage us. Where we're weak, may you uphold us, Lord. Where sorrow is deep, may you bring joy. And Lord, cause us tonight to trust you even more. And Lord, we ask that tonight you would give us a great desire to always be with one another. To always assemble with this family called Riverbend Church. Lord, these are clear testimonies that you've given in the scriptures. And we pray that we would be able to apply them to our church, to our life as Christians. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we jump into Leviticus 23, we actually tackle the feasts that are given to the nation of Israel. But before we do that, I want to start in Hebrews chapter 10, particularly down verse 19 and to follow there. Now, there's a reason for doing this is God has always assembled his people. Uh, you will see today that he has these feasts set up and the Sabbath where he constantly wants to gather his people. He wants them gathered together. This is the nature of our Lord and so when we get to Hebrews chapter 10, especially as we've been learning through the Pentateuch and seeing a lot of this Old Testament language, so often we see that same language in the New Testament. And it's applied to the church age in many ways. Now look with me at Hebrews 10 verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence, you have confidence now because of what Jesus has done, to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, notice this, by a new and living way. This is a greater way than the Old Testament, than the Old Covenant. Because it was done once and for all, which he, that's Jesus, inaugurated for us through the veil that is in his own flesh. And since we have a great high priest, this is the theme of Hebrews, right? He's greater in all these areas. Over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Now that part of the temptation and what happened with the nation of Israel is the feast became repetitious. Much like church can become repetitious for somebody. He wants us to draw near in a sincere heart. He's challenging these Hebrew Christians in the first century to come with a full assurance, with a sincere heart, having our hearts sprinkled with clean, uh, clean from the evil conscience of our bodies, washed with pure water. Just Old Testament language there, isn't there? But applied to the new covenant work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. That confession is the gospel. Hold it. Hang on to it. Grasp it. Do it with confidence because the Lord will not fail you. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. If church just becomes a ritual, you're raised in church, that's what you do then the stimulating of the love of Christ will fail in this assembly. It has to be more than just some ritual. It has to be driven by the gospel. And then finally, verse 25, not forsaking our own assembling. 
together. This is what we're going to see in Leviticus chapter 23, these feasts that God has set up to constantly assemble his people. Notice already in the first century, as is the habit of some. But encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And you've got to be together to encourage one another, right? Now turn back to, with me to Leviticus chapter 23, and we will attempt, we'll see how far we get. This is a long chapter today, and it's going to go through all the feasts. But we'll see how we do here and get through this. And I hope and pray that as we get through this passage in Leviticus 23, that these verses and will help you understand a little more in a new covenant way, Hebrews chapter 10, but it'll make it uh, vivid to you and and you'll desire to see that God wants us to be together. Maybe you went through some kind of time in your life where you were away from the church and you grew cold in your love for the Lord and the love for other people. But then when you returned and the Lord sparked you again to love him and he brought you back and you repented of being away, think of what's happened in your heart since then. This is important and gathering together, God knows that we need it. So let's look at some, the Sabbath and then these feasts. The first point here is the Lord has always called his people together in a sacred gathering. Look with me at verses 1 through 3. The Lord spoke again to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, the Lord's appointed time which you shall proclaim a holy convocation. My appointed times are these. For six days a week may be done, excuse me, six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation, and you shall not do any work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwellings. Well, chapter 23, God commands the nation to gather for these feasts that we're going to talk about. And he gives descriptions of how they're to be observed and so forth. And these feasts were given to the nation of Israel. They're not given to the church, but there's much to learn from them. There's rich symbolic truth in there. There's prophetic significance fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I love this term, holy convocation. Maybe your translation might say sacred assemblies. And it speaks of this sacred gathering of God's people, the sacred gathering of the nation of Israel. And they were called to gather these feasts that belong to the Lord. And notice he says, it's my appointed times. They're his feasts. They're to be gathered for him. Now, the clear theme of all the feasts is thanksgiving and gratitude. We'll see that over and over. Thanksgiving and gratitude through these feasts for what God has done and what he's going to continue to do with the nation. In God's attributes, as you study them, one of the things that just keeps coming out in there is this mercy and this kindness and this sovereignty over all things is themes that you see in these feasts. But this is what the church does today, right? We gather and um, not just for communion to do remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ, which that the Lord's table is that great time where we slow down as a church and remember this finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Bible teaches the believer to daily have a heart of gratitude for what God has done. And often that comes when we gather together. If you don't gather with other believers, I promise you, you will grow bittered or uh, unkind. Lots of terrible things begin to happen. God wants us together. He wants us to, to rehearse the great mercies and kindness of God has done to us and uphold one another. Now, 
Every time we meet, I think God looks at it as a holy convocation. He sees it tonight. He sees it as a sacred gathering of his children. It's holy because we're holy. It's because God resides within us. It's the holiest place on earth. And so it's holy because God is dwelling in us and he's here to be with us. And so it is a holy, sacred gathering. And every time we should get together, we should sing of his mercy and kindness and his truths. And we should speak of that. And that's why we're a very gospel-centered, Christ-centered church. And you'll never go away not be reminded of those truths, I think, from this pulpit. But verse 3 reminds us that there was first a holy convocation with the nation of Israel. And it was to be held on the Sabbath. Notice there in verse 3 that it was a weekly day of rest. And it was a rest from everyday duties, remembering that God had control of their lives, that God had given them everything they need. He had rescued them. He had brought them them out of slavery. Think about this. Everything from rescue to reconciliation. And the Sabbath was meant to stop from those daily chores, that daily life, and remind themselves to rest in God in their individual dwelling places. You can see that right there in verse 3. So this meant the entire nation came to a halt on the Sabbath. Came to a halt. There was no selling of stuff. The streets were only filled with people who were going to the temple. There was nothing else going on. It was time to think of God. Now, obviously, the Sabbath was not like the rest of the seven feasts we're going to look at in this chapter, but... It was a sacred gathering of God's people. The word Sabbath and rest actually have the same Hebrew root word, and the word seventh has one actually similar to that. And in Exodus chapter 20, when we begin to think about the command to keep the Sabbath, we, we see that this is important to God, right? Now, we've dealt with this as we went through there, that we're not Sabbatarians anymore because today... We believe in Jesus Christ that we rest in him. But every once in a while, I do run into Sabbatarians. And they're they're pretty staunch on their belief in a lot of ways. And it's usually so I walk them through several passages to help them think through this. Because I think it's a command given to the nation of Israel because the church is free from this and that every day we rest. But I usually start with Exodus chapter 20. I says, well, why do you rest on the Sabbath? What is your reasoning for doing that? on Saturday, the Sabbath that you keep. I said, because Exodus 20, verse 9 and 10 says, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God, and in it you shall do, not do any work for you, your sons, your daughters, your male and female servants, your cattle and your sojourners within you. So is that the reason? Or if you go down to verse 11, or he repeats this in Acts, excuse me, Exodus 31, 17, he says that, The Sabbath is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. Now think about this. Six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased for his labor, so you should keep the Sabbath because of that. So I ask people, do you keep the Sabbath because you're an Israelite? Do you keep the Sabbath because um, you work six days and you're not to work the seventh? Or do you keep the Sabbath because it's a picture of creation? Which is it? But there's one more (laughs) that we can't really claim. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 14 through 17, talks about the Sabbath day, that it is reserved not to do any work. Your daughters, your male and female servants, your donkeys, your cattle, your ox, 
um, male servants, female servants, all that are with you, you shall rest and remember that you were a slave in Egypt. So now I go to the fourth one. Do you keep the Sabbath because you were a slave in Egypt? See, we have to be careful because we grab onto things that we think may make us more approved to God, but under the new covenant, we are approved to God only through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so we find great comfort there. But yet in this time, we're reminded as Christians, we rest in Christ every day. I love Hebrews 4, 10, and 11. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And just that wording of there. Because there were some who had come, be, be, they were Hebrew Christians, and it was hard. They, they were, do we give up? Do, is all these things that our people have held in, in sacred uh, uh, gatherings, do we, do we let all that go? But, but the writer of Hebrews says there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Oh, so what is that? Well, then he goes on to explain, for the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his own works. So this is beautiful, isn't it? Just as God did. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. So you have to be diligent because it's easy to add works to God's finished work. And so we have to be diligent at this. If somebody gives you something out of the blue, they walk up and say, I was just thinking of you, I got this for you. What's your first response? What can I do back for them? It's in our nature to do that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But it doesn't work when it comes to your salvation. <laughs> in fact, it's a major stumbling block. And so we have to be diligent to enter that rest in the fact that, the verse goes on, so that no one will fall through the same examples of the disobedient. And so the nation of Israel was disobedient. They didn't, they, they didn't, they became ritual in their exercise of keeping the Sabbath. But now in the new covenant, you and I have a reason to always be setting time apart for God, whether it's a Monday, a Wednesday, a Friday, or a Sunday, whatever it may be, we enter in that Sabbath rest because Jesus died for us. Now, Colossians 2, 16 and 17 remind us that therefore now let no one judge you of your of your acts regarding food or drink in respects to festivals, new moons, or a Sabbath. These are all things of a mere shadow to come. And so the problem, um, and as we study these feasts, I want you to be careful you don't run and think you want to start doing these things. I'm going to try to point each one of them to Christ because these were all of something of greater to come. In each and every way, we find that there's a greater reason to keep the Sabbath through Jesus Christ and every day becomes a Sabbath. So in, in Israel's day here in Leviticus chapter 23, no work was to be done whatsoever on this day. It was not like all the other festivals. In fact, it's probably got the strictest laws to it. But therefore, they, they physically rested. And, in, and, and even in this, and we studied this back in Exodus 20, if you want to go back and listen to that message, um, they, they did this in honor of God and what he had done for them. They remembered that God had now given them a way to atone for their sins. And so they were to enter into a rest in this temporary work of God. But we, we've entered into a greater rest that's permanent. And so I think we have to ask ourselves these questions. And you might be here still wrestling with things. Um, I often have people in my office and I ask them the question, is it Jesus plus anything else? 
So have you rested in the finished work of Jesus? You've got to ask yourself that. Do I believe that Jesus accomplished everything and all that I do now is motivated from his glorious gospel that's changed my life? Not to gain something. One last thought on this. Um, Jesus rested after he agonized. I got thinking about this today. I went back and read the scene of the cross there and such agony our Lord was on, had while he was on the cross and and for many reasons, one, he felt the full wrath of his father uh, pressed on him and the judgment of God. You remember, he, he was judged like he committed our sins, right? The wages of sin was death. But after he rested from his agonizing work, he gave up his spirit. And when he gave up his spirit, that was, I've done it all, I've completed it, it is finished, And now, because I've done that, you now enter into my rest. You now enter into my peace. It's the greatest Sabbath rest man could ever desire. I mean, I just, as I read the death of Christ, and again, the resurrection puts a stamp on all that. We'll get to that because one of the feast points towards that. But I thought, oh, Lord, there was a moment where you controlled, you were under great agony, And then there was a moment it was completed. You knew it was completed. You knew you paid the full judgment. And you gave up your spirit. And as you gave up your spirit, we entered your peace. Such a wonderful thought. And so we need to be careful that we don't add anything to the finished work of God. And and so how do you think about this? How do we make every day a Sabbath? Can that get ritual? Can we be um, lazy on Monday morning in our relationship with the Almighty? How about Wednesday afternoon? Friday? I mean, we ha- we need- the gospel keeps you vigilant, doesn't it? And that's why we preach the gospel to ourselves so that we don't become like the nation of Israel where the Sabbath was some legalistic thing that you did and you tried to find any corners you could because you just had to get through that day so you could get back making money. See, we don't fall into that. And there's a danger there, but we have a greater reason, right? The Lord Jesus Christ has fulfilled all these things. Well, let's look at some of the feasts here. Um, Number two, the first feast is the Passover. Passover. And we see it in verses 4 and 5. These are the appointed times of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. In the first month of the 14th day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. After reminding them of the priority of the Sabbath, God gives Moses a list of seven feasts that he commands them to observe and celebrate at a particular time of year that he has chosen. Notice, this is the 14th day of the month. It's the, it's the first month of the Jewish calendar, which was known as uh, Nisan. And the Passover began at twilight, which marked the end of one day and the beginning of another one. But you remember back in Exodus 12, we, we clearly outlined all that God had done in uh, his rescue of the nation of Egypt, the supernatural plagues that he given, the death of the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And we remember, we studied that Israel was spared from that terrible judgment because they had faith in God's word. God's word came through Moses. Moses said from God, slay a one-year-old lamb and put its blood on the lintels of the doorpost. 
And so when the death angel came to take life of the firstborn across the land of Egypt, he passed over the homes that were under the blood of the lamb. And so the Passover was to commemorate not only, think about this, not only just the deliverance from Egypt, but probably more important, the escape of God's judgment. I I, I think we have to be conscious of how we talk about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. People will say, well, you believe in Jesus. You know, Jesus loves you. We, We make comments like that. Do you know that Jesus' death on the cross gave us this amazing escape of uh, eternal damnation. It brought us uh, from underneath the wrath of God. And so the Passover was to teach them as much as God brought them out of the land of Egypt is that they, they were passed over. They did not receive the death that everyone else received because they believed God's word and the blood of the Lamb. And this remembrance of God's passing over those who were covered by the blood of the Lamb was still fresh in their minds when they're looking at this in Leviticus 23. In fact, they don't even celebrate the first Passover till Numbers chapter 9 when they are now in the land or getting prepared to go to the land, excuse me. But as Jesus' ministry begins, we see this same type of language, don't we? John the Baptist, in a way of introduction, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so this feast was to be reminded that there was one who protected them from the judgment of God. This blood of this Lamb protects them from the judgment of God. But as Jesus begins his ministry, this cry from John the Baptist starts this language that every sinner's ear and every sinner's heart who gets saved loves, right? That's the Lamb of God. So that's why Jesus is so precious to us. We see him on that cross. He's so precious because when I hear of his finished work, it means something, right? It's my motivation. It's my joy that Jesus died for me. And it hits my ears and my heart. And there's great joy there. Think about this when we get into Israel here This first feast for what really is fallen man, right? They're fallen. They need a permanent redeemer in Jesus Christ to come someday. But this first fallen feast was just a shadow of great things to come. It's only through the blood of the Lamb where grace meets the sinner. There's no other way. And so God meets every saved sinner with the blood of the Lamb. That's his own beloved son's blood and shows them that through the death of the Lamb, life is given. And they needed to remember that, even in the Old Testament days, because there was a shadow being cast to the greater one, to the greater Lamb. So God rescues the nation of Israel with a slain Lamb, and 2,000 years later, He sends His Son to be the final Lamb, the final offering to God. And without it, we have no hope. So as John stands weeping in Revelation 5, you remember that great scene, and an elder comes up and puts his hands on him and says, stop weeping, and he directs his attention to the throne, and there in the throne is the lion, the tribe of Judah, but as he looks a little more intently, there's a lamb as slain. See, it wipes away tears. It gives great hope, 
And even in that beautiful prophetic language that's in Revelation, we see hope as we look to the Lamb each and every time. And so the only portal to eternal life comes through the final Passover lamb no other way. And so as we look at the feast, uh, the Passover feast that is given here, it's pointing towards something so much greater. So we as Christians are saved by the blood of the lamb, and we worship the final Passover lamb. And isn't it interesting that Jesus, the night before his death, in Luke 22, 14 through 16, said this, When the hour had come, he reclined at the table And the apostles with him, and he said to them, listen to this, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Isn't that amazing? He knew it was the last one. He desired for that last one, that that final scene, that final type to be done with. And after that, he makes that great statement, for I say to you, I shall never eat again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He he knew it was done. There's almost a sense of, though he knew the weight that was coming, there's a sense of anticipation that the type is going to be now used up. No more is there a need for the type. There's going to be replaced with him himself as the final lamb. And so there was no more need for a Passover. And someday... You bring the whole company of believers for all time together. All the ransomed ones, think about this, who have been saved from the wrath of God and made heirs of his glorious kingdom and will, and will sup with him at the supper, the supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb. What a beautiful thought. And so the Passover points forward. Third, we get to the second feast here. Third in my notes, but to the second feast. Um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Look at verses 6 through 8 with me. Then the 15th day, on the same month, there is a feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat of unleavened bread, and on the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall, you shall not do any laborious work, but for the seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord, and on the seventh day, in a holy convocation, you shall, do, you shall not do any laborious work. Well, here we come to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which originally was established at the same time as the Passover. And you remember we studied this in Exodus chapter 12. And this was, the, this was a kind of second part of the Passover, really. It lasted through Nisan 15th through the 21st, that first month of the calendar. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread marked the remembrance that their deliverance had begun as they escaped the nation of Israel. And the first day of the feast was this holy gathering, right? A holy assembly and a sacred gathering, this convocation. And outside of food preparation, there was to be no work done because they had to prepare this unleavened bread. And as they gathered together, they remembered they escaped and how God Ransom to him. And so the feast was to bring forth gratitude as they ate their unloving bread on the way out of their slavery. They were to remember that after each sacrifice was offered, there was a hasty flight, right? They were to eat that lamb, leave none left over, and then they were to, to eat, take that bread with them as they escaped the horrors of Egypt. And so the unleavened bread reminded them that they were to leave the sin of Egypt behind them. 
Unfortunately, we know that that didn't happen. But that's what it's to remind them of. And it really was a type that teaches that they had deliverance. They could, they could shake off this former connection to the sin of Egypt. Leaven usually represents sin. And so here this unleavened bread was to remind them that they were not to take those things with them. What a great reminder for us. Christ died for sin. And yet we play with it, don't we? Christ died for sin. And so the Feast of Unleavened means all the more for us when we think about it as a Christian. These terms are used throughout the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 7 and 8, and a passage that we studied not too long ago. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. The Bible is teaching us that our position in Christ, we're free from our sins. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, but with leaven of, or nor with leaven of malice or wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so these terms get brought into this, into this new relation, into the new covenant, to teach us that we're free from those things. And so again, the shadow is pointing forward to something greater. Now, practically, the Feast of Unleavened Bread also was good for the nation. Yeast can develop into harmful bacteria, and they were to remove it out of their homes. Again, this passage doesn't give us all the details. Exodus 12 did and other passages, but they were to sweep out their homes. They were to be clean. And so, as a Christian, we sweep out lingering sin. When's the last time you did some spiritual house cleaning? Lord, what are some things that I brought from Egypt. What are some of the things that I brought from my former way of life before you saved me? Notice that both on the first day of the week and the last day of this week-long festival of unleavened bread in the text there, that Israel was to gather in this holy assembly, this holy convocation. And notice they were to treat each day as those days as an additional Sabbath. Those first and last day, they were to be very special. I mean, nothing else to be done. They were to think about what was happening. They were to think about this unleavened feast. They were to think about unleavened in relationship to their own lives. And so there was a time of contemplation here. But again, there is a consistent message of foreshadowing through these feasts that is fulfilled in Christ, right? And so the greater rest is fulfilled, the greater cleansing, right? The permanent cleansing of sin is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our fourth point looks at the third feast, the feast of first fruits, 9 through 14. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land which I'm going to give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheath of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheep before the Lord for you to be accepted. And on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Now, on the day when you have the wave of the sheep, you shall offer a male one year old without blemish, lamb without blemish, defect, for a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two tenths of the ephod and fine flour mixed with oil, and an offering by fire to the Lord for smooth aroma. 
a soothing aroma, with its drink offering the fourth of a hen of wine. Until this same day, until they have brought into the offering of your God, you shall eat neither bread nor roasted grain nor new growth. It is to be a perpetual statue throughout your generation in all your dwelling places. Well, now we get to this, what the Bible calls the, first, the feast of the first fruits, or later, um, and actually even before, but it seems to turn into the feast of harvest is a term that gets used a lot. This feast would not be celebrated until they came into the land of Canaan. You notice in verse 10, that's when they come there, they're, they're, this is a feast that they're going to do when they get into this land. And this was also one of the feasts that um, the men were to gather yearly on, and we see that in Exodus chapter 23. But I particularly like this feast because it's a celebration of a coming harvest. In fact, as they, I, I think the idea, as I've studied this, is that when they first see the stalks begin to break through the soil, they are to give thanks with a heart of gratitude anticipating what God is going to do. I remember praying with an old man one day, godly man, this was years ago. And, and I prayed with him often, and every time he said this, he said, Lord, we want to thank you ahead of time for what you're going to do. I learned to pray that way after a while. Lord, we're going to thank you for what you're doing ahead of time for us. It's a good way to pray. And that's what this feast was. They were to... They were to trust God, and as those shoots of grain began to poke through the soil, they were to see that God was providing for them, and they were to anticipate it and, and have gratitude towards God. And then the sheaf that was most likely a, from probably the previous harvest, it was to be waved in front of God, thanking Him and honoring Him. But as we see the wave of the sheaf, they were to also offer this one-year-old male lamb with a grain offering, a drink offering at the same time. The grain was about four pounds of this finely grain, ground grain, the best they had, and mixed with the purest of oil. The drink offering was probably a quart of wine or so, something around there. It was likely poured out around the base of the altar. Other passages teaches this. And this first fruits of the harvest fest here took place on the day after the Sabbath that ended the Passover. So these feasts are really close together. And it actually places all three of these feasts of Israel's calendar tightly together within a period of about nine days. Notice in verse 14, they were not to eat of the new harvest until the offering of thanksgiving was given. They're not to partake about this. Wheat came in first, right? It was one of the first crops in. It ripens the earliest. And so before they gather that in, Thanksgiving was to take place. Now, Christ fulfills the type of this first fruit in so many ways. It's very fun to study this. Um, One, so much points to Christ arising on the third day after the Passover. He is, in a sense, he, he has become our Sabbath ever since, right? The church totally changes from worship on the Sabbath to the first day of the week to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in his resurrection, that tomb was opened, and now the first fruit that God has accepted him and his work on our behalf is now seen. And there could be no harvest of souls unless Jesus was presented as the first fruit and accepted by the Father. 
And every time Easter comes around, it reminds us to make sure when we share the gospel, don't forget the resurrection. Because he is the first fruit of that. And so I think what's so disparaging when you study Catholicism and see a Jesus still on the cross is there's no representation of first fruits of him beating death, sin, and Satan. He still hangs on that. Because he, his work wasn't complete in those religions. They have to keep doing things, but not with Jesus. The Jews didn't really celebrate this feast until they got into the land. Joshua 5.11 reminds us that they began doing this once they entered the promised land. And God providentially brought them into land at the time of harvest. And the food was hanging on the trees and in the fields. But it's clear Jesus is the first fruits, Right? He, he is a pledge of our own harvest, our own resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. Listen to this. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I mean, Paul doesn't just stumble into using that word, right? I think I'll just call Jesus a first fruit. No. There's an understanding here. This is gratitude and thanksgiving if Christ doesn't die like he says himself a kernel of wheat must go into the ground and must die in order to give life this is the representation that's given off as we look at this from a New Testament standpoint of view so when Israel when they tasted the first fruit of the harvest in the land of Canaan they rejoiced because think about it, they had seen now the completion God had spared them, didn't judge them in Egypt, but brought them out. And now they are in the land that was promised. It's this completed work, right, on their behalf. Now, again, it's not complete like we know in the New Covenant, but to them, they experienced a completed deliverance from Egypt. They'd been through the desert, right? They'd been to Sinai. They'd been through all of that. But think about this. We rejoice at the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our joy is made complete because we know in Christ we are completely delivered because Christ beat death. And now we are the first fruits of his resurrection. I wanted to write in my notes, we're his little sprouts. <laughs> right? Bearing fruit to the resurrection. Bearing fruit that our Savior died and he he appeased the wrath of God and now gives us a position with him. And we enjoy this. And there's so much more you could really have fun. And, and you need to take a Bible college class or a seminary class when you get into the Old Testament and really enjoy these things in depth. But, I mean, he's the wine poured out. He's the grain ground in the pure oil. He's the lamb that was sacrificed. And only Jesus could bring that new harvest of souls. And that ultimate... Um, rejoicing that Paul talks about. Rejoice, again I say rejoice. We have the ability to stay rejoicing as believers. Fifth point, which is the fourth feast, the Feast of Weeks, um, also called Pentecost. Look at verses 15 through 22. You shall also count yourself from the day after the Sabbath, from the day when you brought in the sheath of the wave offering... There shall be seven completed Sabbaths. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. And you shall bring in from your dwelling place two loaves of bread for a wave offering made of two tenths of an ephod. They shall be of fine flour baked with leaven. 
as a first fruit to the Lord. Along with the bread, you shall present seven one-year-old male lambs without defect, a bull of the herd and two rams. They are to be a burnt offering to the Lord and their grain offerings and their drink offerings and an offering by the fire of a smooth aroma to the Lord. You shall also offer one male goat for the sin offering and two male lambs, uh, one year old for the sacrifice of the peace offering. The priest shall then wave them over the bread of the first fruits, over the wave offering of the two lambs before the Lord, for they are to be holy to the Lord for the priest. And on this day you shall make a proclamation as well. You are to have a holy convocation gathering again. You shall do no laborious work. It is to be a perpetual state in all of your dwelling places throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, moreover, you shall not reap it to the very corners of your field, nor gather the, gleaming, uh, gather the gleaning of your harvest. And you are to leave them for the needy and the alien. I am the Lord your God. Well, here, exactly 50 days from the feast of the first fruit, at the completion of that wheat harvest, Israel was to celebrate a feast of weeks, Pentecost. And this gathering is explained more in Exodus chapter 23, and we touched on it before. At this time, they were to bring a new grain offering to the Lord. Later in the New Testament, this feast was referred to again as Pentecost, which means 50th. <laughs> That's where the word comes from. Penta is five. Uh, Pentecost, we get that 50th in the Greek. During this offering of the Feast of, two, of, the, of Weeks, two loaves of bread with leaven in them were to be weighed before the Lord. This was kind of a pita type of bread, but notice it has leaven in it. But notice in the text that the flour was to come from the Israelites' homes, where they were to be um, baking these goods with the best of their flour, these loaves, and then they were to wave them before the Lord. And this leaven in the loaves was because the flour came from their daily use. Thereby, presenting to the Lord a thanksgiving for their daily food. God would provide for them daily, even of the finest wheat from their own homes. Now, this is the rare time when leaven is not looked upon as sin, right? And after these loaves of leaven were weighed before the Lord, they were to offer them on the altar with these seven lambs and one young bull and two rams, along with these grain offerings and drink offerings. And this holy convocation, this holy assembly and sacrifice were made at the tabernacle or the temple later. And it was another day of rest where they would rest from their work outside of their cooking. Now, this feast also was one of the three feasts which God had commanded the men of Israel to gather. And we see those in other passages um, once a year. So God was looking at them and saying, look, I want you to bring bread from your own home now. I want you to have a stake in this, to realize that I'm in, I'm in the everyday details. I'm in your life. I'm in your home. I should be the center of all that you do. One other note, I was reading an article a couple weeks ago, and someone wrote, and they, they were, it was an article that God protects us. And they gave several illustrations through other passages in Old Testament and New Testament. But the one that picked, pointed out, jumped out to me as I was studying this, was he said, if you notice that God calls the men three times a year to leave their families and their homes and go um, consecrate themselves before 
God in a place that he chose as away from the nation. They were to leave the nation empty of men and go and, and have this assembly before God. And the author of this article was showing that why would you do that when your neighbors hate you and you do it every year and they go, hey, on the 15th of this month, they're all leaving. The guys aren't even there. But God protected them. And so I, I bring that thought into this because remember when, when God calls us to do something and you read in the scriptures, there's all kinds of excuses not to do this. When God commands us to gather together, to not forsake the assembly, all kinds of excuses go on in homes before they decide to actually come to church or not come. But God calls us, he provides for that. Uh, too many men through the years have said, Pastor, you, just, you don't understand. I work all these days all week long, and Sunday's the only day I have to fix the yard and do all these things. I just, I just can't give it up. Don't trust God. I mean, I, I get it. I ran ranches and all those type of things, and it's busy, right? There's a lot going on. And some of you men and women work a lot of hours. But see, we always make excuses. And, and so when I read that article, I thought, yeah, that's what God does. You obey, he protects. This is what he does with his people. Years later, the Jews began to look at this feast um, and say, they, they really never got a hold of this feast of, of um, weeks or Pentecost. It was, it was one they couldn't really understand. So they gave an explanation that the feast was commemorating the law given at Sinai. That was their explanation of it. But the fact is, there's nothing in the scriptures at all that talk about that. And outside of the celebration of a new wheat harvest, the Jews had never had a clear understanding of what this feast was about because they rejected Jesus as a Messiah. And so here comes the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost, right? This was no mistake, right? The Lord chose to do this. And you think about after the resurrection, he, he, he remained on this earth for 40 days, seen by many witnesses. And then he ascends up, he goes up to be with the Father, leaving the gift of the Spirit on all those who believe. So the Passover points to Christ's death for our sins. The wave offering represents Christ rising from the dead and, and, and beginning the first fruits of the resurrection. And now we have this wave offering of these two loaves filled with leaven. And you begin to realize that this most likely, many people believe this, this represents the earthly ministry of Jesus. He was in amongst the homes. He was in amongst the people. And he's waved up to show like that colonel that fell into the ground and died. Thus he, he lived on this earth and he died on this earth to bring forth much fruit. And so he's in our lives now, right? There's this relationship with him. And so as they wave these loaves full of leaven, it represented Christ being lifted up from the earth that he lived on and drawing all men to himself. And then you get into Acts 2 and you begin to think about the day of Pentecost and the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection were proclaimed and thousands of souls saved because of the work of Jesus Christ. And this is why the Jews have never been able to get their mind around Pentecost. And they take it to a place that the scriptures don't support. 
And so we think about this bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life. And now he's the source of all new life to all those who desire to come into his presence. I really find great comfort in that. The bread of life is the source of new life. Verse 22, most, a lot of theologians I read thought it was kind of a tag-on line because he talks about to remember the poor and the stranger um, here. But I think it has more than that, particularly in the church age. It reminds us that God draws people from every walk of life in. And they were to be reminded of that. That the poorest and the stranger were to be fed by the wheat, by the bread. God still does that today. He has a harvest of gathering people from every economical status, every tribe, tongue, and nation. He gathers people. And he is the source of new life for all, rich or poor. Six, the fifth feast, the Feast of Trumpets, verses 23 through 25. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, In the seventh month of the first of the month, you shall have a rest, a reminder of blowing of the trumpets of a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work, but you shall present an offering by the fire, by fire to the Lord. Well, here in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you notice that um, there has been about four months, probably a little over four months since the last feast. And this is pretty fascinating. Basically, God has allowed the nation to now go gather in their harvest. Right after um, the Feast of First Fruits, the, the wheat harvest has come in and, and Pentecost happens, but now there's this break. And that's when the rest of all of the barleys and, and the uh, grapes for wine and so forth all gets gathered in. And so now on this first day of the month of Tishra, is the Jewish cal- on the Jewish calendar, God calls for this special day of Sabbath rest and a ceremony of blowing trumpets. Later, they would often refer to this as a fall festival of trumpets. And so it, it's grouped together in some fall festivals, some fall feast, right? So it's the uh, feast of, of trumpets, the day of atonement's going to be next, and then the feast of tabernacles. These are all linked together in the fall, and they're all centered around Thanksgiving and harvests that God provided. But the Feast of Trumpets was another, notice, a holy convocation, a holy assembly. And it was a special day of rest, and they blew trumpets, and they honored and thanked God for the harvest. This was a, this was a great day. It's probably one of many theologians, it's probably one of the most joyful days out of all of the feast on the Jewish calendar. And it's often reflected in a lot of Psalms, Psalms 89, 15 through 16. How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. O Lord, they walk in the light of your countenance, and in your name they rejoice all day long, and by your righteousness they are exalted. We see this trumpet of, of, of praising God come out in many Psalms. And they sang Psalms at this time. It was a great time. The God had provided again. The harvest is there. It's probably one of the things we miss the most of, of the ranch life. We don't miss all the work and <laughs> all those other things that go with it. But harvest was so great when the hay was in the barn and, and the cattle were coming home and, 
you know, we always had celebrations at church in the country because everybody's done. Our fair was always at the end of summer, and everybody would bring their fruits and vegetables, and there'd be contests of growing things. And it was just a great time. And even in the pagan world, in the ranching world, everybody get together, and there was so much joy at the fair, and people just rejoicing after a long summer of gathering cattle and growing crops and all the things that went. It was a great time. And I can see that here. There was great joy in this festival. And the Lord pulled them together to rejoice and to praise him for it. But someday, in the providence of God, another trump will sound. Isn't this great? And Christ will gather a great harvest of souls that he's purchased with his own body and blood. And and the final sacrifice and the sweet aroma will be to the Father. And he'll gather in all nations to himself. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 18 says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a, with a shout, with a voice of the archangel, and with a trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive will remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. I grew up singing the old hymn, When we all get to heaven... What a day of rejoicing that'll be. You know this song. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. So that was what that feast was pointing towards. The final harvest of souls that God does through his son and brings this great uh, uh, ethnically diverse group of people all together into one family. Oh, to be part of that great harvest, I trust you will be. And I think we often think, we must think, are we, are, do we know that God has secured our souls through Jesus Christ alone? I was talking to a dear woman Sunday who has been in another religion for years and years. She talked about her labor and the broken heart she had and the failures and how the church treated her and so forth. And then I mentioned, I said, what does grace mean to you? Tears just flooded down her eyes as just recently she has been introduced to grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and how glorious he is. And she trumpeted what she had learned. She she trumpeted that Jesus was the real deal to her. And we were encouraged as we listened to her. The sixth feast. Ooh. The Day of Atonement. Why don't I quit here? <laughs> I, I can't get all this done. It's a long chapter, and I'll tie it into the 24 next time because I'm, I'm out of time. But um, I, I hope this has been encouraging. It's really fun to study. Um, there's, there's so much truth that points forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, and I, I, I could spend so much time on each feast to explain it all. But I trust you've been encouraged. Let me leave you with this thought. Do you see how many times God gathered his people? Do you see how precious it is that the, the body of Christ still gathers today? Do you see why uh, many of us, and include many in this room, hurt when the world said you can't meet anymore? And though we didn't stay very long apart, can you imagine much of our church family around the world, Ukraine and Afghanistan, their battle to meet even to gather as bomb shelters and parking lots 
gathering in homes on different days so the Taliban doesn't pick them off in Afghanistan. They have an insatiable desire to meet. It's the mark of a Christian. It's the mark of a Christian. So let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Let us come and stimulate one another. Every time you show up, you stimulate your pastor. Very much so. Because I see you and I see your desire to learn and be under the word of God. And the elders are encouraged. Father, we thank you for this time together, Lord. And we thank you for a rich passage that was a shadow of things to come. And Lord, we understand from our own sin of complacency that maybe the nation of Israel soon fell into. They began to just do these things out of duty. And there was no delight. And once things are done out of duty, we really give Satan an opportunity. Hearts become cold. Offenses are taken up. All kinds of problems begin to happen when we don't obey God's word and gather. And Lord, we pray that as New Covenant Christians, under the finished work of Jesus Christ, the final lamb, that you would constantly stimulate us to want to gather together. Whether that's in a Wednesday night meeting or Sunday morning worship service, a baptismal service, a a gathering outside where we just celebrate the family of God together, Whatever it may be, Lord, give us a desire to obey you in these areas. Let us be an example to the world that that really has no plan. they're, They're just pushed around by the events of life. And yet, here's those people down there at 2080 Granada that keep gathering. They're always there. There's always cars there. Let that be a witness to people that we believe in something greater than this world's system. That we have a Savior who died for us and has given us all the motivation we need to gather together. So Lord, strengthen us to do those things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.